Welcome to the Mindful on Purpose podcast. Uh, my name is Christina Blackburn, and I am the founder of Speranza Human Compassion Project and also Vanguard Medicine. And in my work, we uh, do research, we do community activism and advocacy. We also do training um, and direct, develop curriculum for first responders and uh, medical professionals who provide services to victims of violent crimes and in particular domestic violence victims. And today we are happy to have Dr. Elena Hill with us from Bronx Care, who is gonna talk a little bit about her background. She's gonna tell a little bit about her work with addiction um, and then tell us a little bit about the correlation between addiction and domestic violence. And kind of we'll talk through a little bit about what um, clinicians um, don't know and probably need to know in this field. And yeah, and we'll get started. So welcome, Dr. Hill. Uh, let's start off with um, just allowing you to introduce yourself and tell a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, so my name is Elena Hill. I'm a family medicine physician practicing at uh, Bronx Care in the Bronx, New York. Uh, I'm, a, like I said, a family medicine physician. So I did my training at Boston uh, Medical Center, which is the big safety net hospital in Boston, and then moved to the Bronx a couple of years ago um, to, to work with the population here. And um, throughout my training, I was really interested in underserved populations and particularly in the social determinants of health. Um, one of my frustrations with training uh, was always that, you know, we're the physicians in the United States are very good at um, learning the medicine and doing all, you know, ordering all the fancy tests and, uh, and labs and uh, imaging studies and referring to all the specialists. But one of the things I think we really miss is the fact that, you know, rare diseases are not the things that contribute to day-to-day -day health, um, the social determinants of health, things like poverty, things like um, violence, both inter partner violence, um, gang violence, uh, sexual violence, um, things like uh, smoking and substance use, um, all of these things have a much larger day-to-day -day impact on both our health and well-being. And so um, that's been a real clinical interest of mine. And so when I started practicing, I started doing a lot more work with patients with addiction and particularly with chronic pain. And when you asked me to do this podcast, I thought it was fitting that um, that we talk about the interplay between domestic violence and its, you know, its role as a main social determinant of health uh, in this country. So that's sort of where I'm coming from, and I'll be totally transparent in that I, I am woefully ignorant about uh, how to best approach patients with IPV interpartner violence. Um, even to this day, I've had some basic training. I think I do as well of a job as it as the next clinician, but um, I think. If you asked most clinicians um, if they feel truly comfortable and experienced in, in dealing with IPV, the answer would be no for a number of reasons, which we can get into. And so I think that's, you know, as a as a society, we're not doing a great job training our doctors and how to really handle uh, domestic abuse um, and violence when we see it in clinic. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, um, that's one of the reasons that we're here today, you know, to, to keep these things top of mind for those working um, on the front line of this very important issue. Uh, tell me a little bit about what made you interested in medicine? Um, 
Well, I've, I've been interested in medicine since I was a young undergraduate student, and I think I was always potentially interested in primary care. And um, I think that the more I went through my career, you know, the more I was committed to primary care for the same reasons we just talked about and that primary care really gets at, and it specifically primary care and addiction medicine really get at these social determinants of health, which I think are, are quite relevant to most people's health care. Um, so I was always more interested in the primary care side of things as opposed to uh, more of the specialist side of things. And I like that my day-to-day work, I'm able to address those things. Um, so there's a real move within our clinic and within primary care in general to really spend more, more of the visit asking about these social determinants of health. You know, do you drink? Do you smoke? Do you have relationships? Um, do you have healthy relationships, whether they're healthy friendships or healthy sexual relationships? Um, where do you live? You know, how do you get around? Do you have difficulty walking? Do you have somebody to help you uh, with day-to-day tasks? Do you have a home health aid? Um, so the, these are the questions that really are a lot more important to people's health than, um, than, than the nitty gritty of every inch of their, you know, past medical history and their surgical history. So I really try to ask more and more of those things. And I think intermittent partner violence is one of the questions that goes on that list and that we are hesitant to ask. And sometimes we forget to ask. I'll I'll ask a little bit more about that. So I love that because I think that um, a lot of our work is around emergency departments where they just don't have that relationship with the patient because they don't have that ongoing, um, uh, you know, they just see the patient one time or they may see them in other emergency situations, but they don't, they can't build that relationship to ask those type of questions. They just don't have the time. Uh, So, you know, I know that doctors are hesitant and they do tell us that they're hesitant to ask those questions because they don't know what resources are are available or what that next step might be. Is that what you're finding for yourself as well? I think so. I think that, uh, you know, in medicine, we learn about screening people for any number of things. And one of the first principles you're taught is don't ask a screening question that you don't know how to do anything about if the answer is yes, right? So uh, IPV is one of those things a lot of the time, unfortunately, is I think clinicians don't know what to do if somebody discloses violence to them. We don't get good training, um, particularly in the legal aspects or the procedural aspects of, you know, how do you go about protecting somebody that's endorsing violence? And so people don't ask. And I know I oftentimes um, either forget to ask or, or actively don't ask because I'm not sure what to do. Uh, and that's a, that's a real problem. And uh, we can talk more about, you know, what options there might be to fix that or address that. But that's certainly why people aren't asking is they don't know what to do if the answer is yes. We don't get good training in that in medicine in general. Mm-hmm. That's what we hear consistently. Uh, so I know that you like working with this vulnerable po- population. Um, what is the impact that you hope to have overall? Um, in terms of interpartner violence specifically, or? No, just with this population, like I know you said this is, you know, you want to work on the social determinants of health, um, which which violence and safe housing is one of those things. What, if, through your work, what is the impact that you hope to have with these patients that's different than what other people might be doing? Yeah, well, I think uh, my, my goal, um, and it's a, 
it's a massive goal, but I think, you know, piece by piece, I think that my goal and primary care clinicians goal in general should be to start to slowly address these social determinants of health um, and recognize truly, you know, what makes a person healthier um, until we address, you know, community violence, until we address structural violence and poverty and food insecurity. I mean, these are the things that make or break somebody's health. I can sit in the office all day long and tell my patient to eat healthier, but I can tell you where I work in the Bronx, you know, for the life of me, if, if I were living there, I couldn't lose any weight or eat healthy because there's no food available that is healthy um, in the community. So how do we address, you know, getting those resources to patients um, uh, that are really directly affecting their health? And that's just one example. I mean, if I have a patient that is dealing with violence, um, whether from a partner or in the community, you know, until I address their ability to feel safe, of course, I can't move on to address, you know, whether or not they've had their screening for their breast cancer or, you know, their their mind, in their mind, that may be a very low priority. So I think that um, the ultimate, I mean, the ultimate, why are we all here in medicine? Ultimately, it's to provide health. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we just revert to the things that are easy, like making sure someone has their mammogram ordered or their, that their, you know, pap smear is up to date. And, and I think that medicine is so much more than that, and real medicine, really helping people, those two addressing those social determinants of health. So at our clinic, we're working a lot on what we're calling an integrated health model, you know, getting behaviorists, therapists physically located in the clinic so that we can hand off um, patients with acute mental health issues. Um, we work on get more case management resources. So somebody that's got food insecurity, instead of just saying, well, good luck, I hope you can eat better, you know, we can actually refer them to uh, our social worker or our case manager who can say, hey, here are the local places where there are food stamps available, or let's get you registered for, for food stamps or um, or, or we can send somebody to our nutritionist over at the hospital. Um, and in a similar vein, I think speaking about interpartner violence, you know, can we get, and, and this system is not in place, but can we get somewhere concrete that I can refer a patient with intimate partner violence to? And currently that's probably our social worker, um, but even they are limited in their ability to provide, you know, legal support. So uh, there's a lot of, and we can get into this as well, there's a lot of talk in the primary care world about medical legal partnerships where there would be consulting lawyers and people with, you know, paralegals or legal background to help consult for patients that are having any number of legal issues, whether it's an issue with intimate partner violence or housing insecurity, um, et cetera. So um, there are areas for intervention. Oh, that's amazing. That would be really good. I think that would be really helpful too. Um, yeah, especially in primary care more than emergency because, you know, emergency, you know, it's, it's a quick turnaround for them, even though we know that victims often wind up waiting a long time for a social worker, but it's not, I mean, but maybe having that advocate there as well might be something that they could do while they're waiting to figure out what's next, you know, that legal person could, you know, help them process or figure out what their next step is legally um, to keep themselves safe, you know, um, that, that's different. I, I never heard of that, but that's great. So would you say that you received any, like, I know you received a trauma-informed care training, um, but outside of that, have you received any other type of training around domestic abuse? I would say it's 
my experience is probably very similar to most um, physicians and, you know, medical students. There is some curriculum in medical school that talks about intimate partner violence as something we should screen for. Um, it's done in a pretty vague way. And I think that in medicine, you know, you learn by doing um, almost entirely. And uh, I'd, so, so I'd say that despite a limited medical school curriculum, um, there's not a lot of opportunities to practice and get comfortable asking these questions unless you really pursue it. I'd say most of the experience I've had is just having real life inter interactions with patients and probably bungling them at least at first. And maybe I still bungle them. Um, but, uh, I think it's most of the time it's just on practice learning, you know, a patient actually comes and endorses violence and then you're stuck trying to figure out what to do. And you do learn from those experiences, but I'm, I'm sure that it would be helpful to have more of a formal curriculum in place so that, uh, that we're not messing up when these when we have these rare opportunities to intervene. Okay. Great. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to have a short discussion now about the new law that's in place. Uh, I, I think I did send it to you. Uh, so in the, in your state, there is a law, um, and, and I've talked about it quite a bit on, on this podcast that came about, and I believe December 2020, um, where it is mandated that all doctors and nurses, social workers, and the security guards at all hospitals in New York State uh, be trained on the protocols and procedures um, necessary to care for patients who are experiencing domestic violence. And, um, you know, this is kind of one of the conver first conversations we had because I'm always curious uh, if doctors know about this uh, because it's critical to the hospitals that you work at and your licensure. Um, but you expressed to me that you didn't, you have never heard of this. Since then, have you um, spoken with anyone about it or what's your, what's your thoughts about not being aware of this law? Well, Christina, I did, of course, you know, look into it after you um, informed me of it. So I'll, I'll be transparent and that, no, I was not familiar with the law. To my recollection, I have not either in my training or at my current position uh, was not aware that that was a, a law. And I do not remember receiving any formal training from my institution Um either during residency or, or at my current job. And I did ask around afterward, actually, to other friends at other institutions and said, out of curiosity, has anybody heard of this or has this been part of their training? Because I have, you know, friends that work in primary care in a number of different places. And so far, I'll be honest that nobody was really familiar with it. Um, and I don't think anybody told me that they had received any formal, any formal training. Yeah, and that's... Um it's, it's interesting to me because there's a reason why, right? We had to put these laws on, these laws had to be put, put on the books because they're needed. And it's unfortunate because I know you guys get so much training and it can be overwhelming sometimes all the different trainings that you have to do. But I we feel like getting training in this area can help support our clinicians because when patients come in and you don't know what to do, you also can feel a level of frustration, you know? But if you're trained and you're well-educated on what to do, you would, it feels like you would feel more supported yourself and feel more knowledgeable. So when these patient comes in, you would know what to do and how to be able to help support them better than just like, okay, now I got to figure this out. Every time a patient comes in that's experiencing this, would you say that? Yeah, I agree. I think it would be a wonderful thing, um, but I'll be transparent in saying that it's not happening right now for most clinicians. They're not getting that training. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Um, 
So we're going to switch a little bit and we're going to talk about your, your research a little bit. I know you do a lot around addiction. Um, and this is one area that we that I haven't really explored much around addiction and um, the cross section between um, those who are have sub, sub, substance use disorder and domestic violence are experiencing domestic violence. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your research around the substance use disorder. And then if you if there's any areas where um, you think clinicians or, you know, other first responders might need to know about how um, they interplay that I would be I would love to hear about that. Yeah, well, one of my clinical interests, like I mentioned, is in addiction uh, and chronic pain specifically. So I spend a good deal of my time uh, working a part time just in our integrated health and, and pain management chronic pain clinic. Um, and in that clinic, I see a lot of patients that are dealing with both both chronic pain and addiction issues. And I think it's interesting that um, I, I would say there's probably a correlation within that clinic to more intimate partner violence. And maybe that's totally anecdotal in that, um, you know, I obviously haven't run the numbers or done any formal research, but I do, I do feel that a, a lot of the women that I work with, uh, maybe more so than just my general clinic um, that are dealing with substance use disorder um, uh, and, and with chronic pain, are also dealing with intimate partner violence. And it makes sense. I mean, if you do look at the research, there is good data that there is at least a, a correlated relationship between substance use. Um, so people are using in the home, whether it's the perpetrator or the victim themselves, um, and that can predispose to violent or aggressive behavior um, or to physical altercations um, and to sexual violence as well. So I have a lot of, uh, and this is a good, uh, this is a good, learning point for me and for clinicians in general is that if you're working with patients that are endorsing either personal or, you know, family history of addiction or somebody in the house is using, you know, ask about physical violence because it comes up a lot. Um, also a lot of times, you know, women or not, not to assume women, but women or, or individuals who are victims of domestic violence um, are using with their partners or their partner is using. And so uh, it does come up in that context. And I will say too, another thing it's missed a lot is patients, the patients that I work with, with chronic pain, um, they're coming in with, you know, physical injuries um, that have caused a lot of chronic pain. And it's one of the things I sometimes forget to ask about, but it comes out, you know, sometimes when I've been working with a patient for even months and I say, listen, you're just always in pain. And and uh, and there have been occasions on which, when we get to know each other, uh, the source of the pain, which has otherwise been kind of unclear and um, uh, insidious, it ends up being that there's ongoing physical violence from a partner. So, if you have a patient coming in, uh, either if you're a primary care physician or if you're any sort of clinician listening to this, um, and you have patients that are using substances. Uh, or patients that are coming in with sort of just unclear, ongoing pain and anxiety and stress. You know, these are ask, remembering to ask about intimate partner violence is is really good, really essential, and we forget to do it. That's good. Um, I was going to ask you something about that. Mm, let me think. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what I was going to ask you. So, do you through your um, research? Would you, and you can tell me you don't know, and it's fine. I just have a question as you were talking. Would you say that it's because of the violence that the person is using or 
you know, because they're experiencing the violence, they don't know how to deal with it. So then they start using substances like maybe alcohol or drugs to to deal with the the situation that they're they're dealing with that's all already painful and maybe it's like an escape for them. Or would you say their use is causing the violence? Uh, I would say both. And I, I would say I would feel confident in saying that's not just a personal opinion. There's pretty good research on that. Um, that these, like I said, that there's a correlation there. And I would imagine that they can be, that one can trigger the other in that, um, uh, that an individual who's experiencing interpartner violence can use any number of things as coping mechanisms, right? And, and drugs and alcohol being one of them for sure. Um, and at the same time, the, you know, the use of drugs and alcohol puts us physically in vulnerable position where we're less able to um, to protect ourselves and maybe actually in it, depending on the drug of choice and the circumstances can cause aggressive behavior, um, or less ability to, def to defend oneself. And so it is a cycle. I'd say that, um, that one can prompt the other. And I see that a fair amount. Okay. That's good to know. Thank you. Um, I think we've pretty much answered all the questions. Oh, I know one thing. So we had talked about doing a grand round um, and as a way to educating uh, the other doctors within the health system around just screening, you know, and other uh, pertinent things that they might need to know. Do you think that this would be a good way for other health systems to begin thinking about this and um, integrating this type of training into their their lectures or what they already provide for their the training that they already provide for their clinicians. I do. I think that um, you know clinicians are very busy, and we have to keep learning all the time. And one of the ways that universally we do that is through a grand rounds um, and continuing medical education program. So most institutions um, have usually weekly grand rounds for clinicians. Um, for those of you that aren't involved in that or aware of that. And so our, our grand rounds are usually once a week and, and it certainly helps me um, to stay abreast of new innovations and new things in medicine, whether that's very clinical and a lot of our rounds, particularly in family medicine, which is a, a specialty that really lends itself to thinking about more um, cultural and social determinants of health. A lot of our grand rounds are on more social topics and intimate partner violence could certainly be one of them. Certainly be a good way. And I oftentimes find, oh, you know, after a grand rounds, I think, oh, I, now I'm more aware of that issue than I was before. And so, especially when intimate partner violence is something we forget about or forget to ask about doing a grand rounds would be a good way to get it back on people's radars as something we should be screening for. Um, I had one other thought, Christina, too, um, just in, in thinking about this and sort of the role that primary care can play. And I think, um, you know, you talked about the fact that a lot of times uh, clinicians are encountering patients with intimate partner violence in the emergency room setting, which is for better or for worse, right? It's great that we catch it there, but it's not always the best place to address it. Uh, and so I think one of the strengths in primary care um, is that you do have these longitudinal relationships with people. And certainly when I work with people, it's very rare for someone to walk in and say, I'm experiencing this. That's why I'm here. I want help immediately. Um, in fact, to be quite honest in that setting, it's, it's never happened. That's never been the chief reason someone's come in. If any, any times I've been able to have success in, in moving people toward, um, escaping a relationship that's un unwell. It's been over the course of multiple sessions with them. Um, and it's also, you know, we're sort of talking about this like a, 
as though most people sort of are hesitant to, to disclose what's going on, which can certainly be true. But also you get a lot of people that are very open about talking about it. And it's not a it's not a shameful thing. It's a cultural thing. They come from backgrounds where they talk very openly about the fact that their partner hits them or hurts them. Uh, and so it's not necessarily, oh, the dynamic is not always necessarily, oh, we're trying to figure out if this is happening or not. Sometimes we're quite aware that it's happening um, and we have an open, you know, I have several patients that every time I see them, I check in and I say, you know, so-and-so, how has he been recently? Are you thinking about making a change? Are you still with him? You remember that I'm here to be somebody to help you if you decide that you'd like my legal help, you know? So uh, it's a little bit different than it sort of may, you know, may appear in the, in the movies and that it's not something that it's necessarily a secret. It may be a, an open conversation you're having with, um, with, patients over time. And so there is a real value and power to having that longitudinal relationship with them. Um, and the one other thing I'd say, not to take up too much of the time, is also in primary care, we forget, and I forget sometimes too, that my patients are the perpetrators too. So I have a lot of patients, and actually in primary care, um, I take care of a lot of couples. So I have patients where I know him and I know her, and I know he's hitting her. Um, and, uh, that's an, a difficult dynamic too, as a provider, because you have to have loyalty to both your parent patients, you know, um, you're there to be the best doctor or provider you can be to both this man and this woman, or both members of the partnership, if it's a, you know, same sex couple or whatever it may be. Um, and so you have to, you re really have to navigate that. Um, but just remembering too, that, that perpetrators, there's a reason they're doing, they're committing the violent acts. And can we get them to engage in ways to minimize their violence, right? So if you say, listen, when you feel the need to strike out against so-and-so, have you thought about getting, have, have, can I help you intervene at that stage? Can I get you to see a therapist to talk about these violent behaviors? Um, you know, my, my role is not to send you to the police, you know, but my, my role is to help you to work on your own aggression or your own behaviors. So can I help you in that way? So also remembering to ask if, ask if somebody's experiencing violence, but also if they're perpetrating violence too in primary care. No, that's really good. Uh, so I have some questions about that. Um, <clears throat> so do you ever refer them? So this is another thing that we're trying to push for doctors to refer if they do know of a patient who is experiencing um, intimate partner violence to refer them to therapy. Have you ever referred them to like marriage therapy or somewhere else where they can work through this as a couple? Oh yeah, in fact, I would say that it's a lot easier to do that. And pr probably I do that a lot more than I actually refer them to legal services because they're not, you know, they're not interested in ending the relationship oftentimes. Um, and so it's about harm reduction, right? My goal doesn't necessarily have to be to insist that they be out of that relationship. It's not realistic and that's not, always going to be where they're at. And so meeting them where they're at and saying, listen, if you want to continue to be with this person, that's, it's not my job. It's not my right to tell you who or who not to be with. Um, but can we minimize the risks to you while you're in that relationship? Can we have you guys, um, can I have you seeing a counselor? Can I have a safety plan in place so that if you need to get out of the house or go somewhere else, even temporarily. Do you have a safe place you can go? Do you have somebody that you'll call? Will you call me? Will you call a friend? So safety plans, right? So the goal, again, we kind of forget that our goal is not to convince someone to leave a, 
a domestic violence relationship necessarily if that's not where they're at. It's about reducing the harm and keeping them as safe as possible while they're in in that situation. And I use that, you know, harm reduction techniques a lot with people when in my work with addiction, you know, my goal is not to get them to be abstinent. My goal is to get them to use safely, um, whether or not that's, you know, prescribing them Narcan so that they have an overdose plan, whether or not that's um, putting them on medication um, to help reduce their cravings, but without the goal of completely cessating their, their use. So in medicine, we have to think about what keeps somebody safe and not what keeps them necessarily, you know, hundred percent abstinent from, from the source of danger. Right. So, so that's another thing too, is we, I refer to, to therapy a lot. That's great. That's awesome. Um, uh, another question I had based on what you're saying. So this is interesting that the man and the female are open to talking with you about this. Um, yeah. yeah, depending on the situation, sometimes um, I think it's very interesting. You know, we it's probably me coming from a place of privilege in part, but that the way you always hear about domestic violence is it's something that's hidden and people don't want you to know about it. And that's why you have to ask and help. You know, it's a secret. But that is really not the case. I mean, it depends on the culture and the community. But I find in my work here in the Bronx in particular, a lot of people are very acknowledging of the fact that they experience physical violence, either from their partners or or some somebody else in their lives. And uh, that, that's not a happy thing, but it is, you know, culturally something that is spoken about. And so um, so that's almost can be helpful in some ways because it's not like you're prying information that from somebody that doesn't want to give it, you can have an open, honest conversation about it and talk about what, if anything, the person feels like they would like to do to make that better for them. And how, how often would you say in the Bronx that you're seeing patients who are experiencing intimate partner violence, just generally? I would say that I have, you know, out of my panel of maybe this point, probably 500 regular patients that I, see regularly i'd you know and it just doesn't sound percentage-wise like a lot but i'd say i probably have you know six or seven of them that i know and talk very openly about their ongoing domestic violence issues and i would say that's got to be a small percentage of the people that are experiencing it um and so i i think it's very prevalent and i don't think it's just prevalent here i think it's prevalent everywhere um and it's just a question of how much it gets talked about um, but certainly I know it's happening and it's my own fault. And even doing this podcast reminds me to keep aggressively screening for it. Right. Is that it's, it's, it's common and it's common everywhere, but it is definitely common here in the Bronx. Okay. Very good. And as you were talking to, I was thinking another point is pediatrics who often have, um, uh, an ongoing relationship with, um, their care provider and OBGYN is another point where, you know, um, uh, victims may have a provider that can also, you know, they have a long standing relationship over months where they can open up and talk and come up with plans as they're going to see their provider on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just, you know, it, outside of the emergency department, we know that's where a lot of them land, but they're also see, you know, their children might be being seen um, at pediatrics or like they might be pregnant. We know pregnancy is a very vulnerable time for women. Um, and so that, that may be another point where um, clinicians can be that support for the patient. Yeah, and I, I would say in some ways, uh, it's it's actually pregnancy is is a high risk time as we know. And so in some ways, actually, it's, it's good because I think most pregnant women do get 
screened for intimate partner violence just based on the fact that they're pregnant, right? So they actually get asked the questions um, pretty pretty regularly um, in ways that just non-pregnant women are not. And I think that's true in pediatrics too. And it's a little bit of a different situation in pediatrics in that you're a mandated reporter in that case. And so, um, and so actually one of the things that we should mention is I think just even providers knowing the very basics of how to approach a first time disclosure. And what I say quite literally um, is, you know, I, I, not quite this simplistically, but I say thank you for sharing that with me. And so that you know what my role is here, because there's a lot of misconceptions, is that if you are an adult above the age of 18, anything you tell me about what goes on at home, intermittent partner violence is your confidential medical information. And I am not obligated, nor am I even allowed to disclose it to anybody, including, uh, including legal authorities, right? without your permission. That being said, if you ask me to help you disclose this, I am happy to do so, but you can keep, you can rest assured that everything you tell me is and, and must be confidential. The one exception to that is child abuse. And so if I am made aware that there is any risk to any minors involved, whether it's your children or anybody else in the household, I do have to report that. But you as an adult um, have, have a right to privacy. And I think it's worth saying because that clarifies for the the woman or the the victim in general, that that that's that's the rules, and so they feel much more comfortable uh, once I've stated that, and that's exactly how I do it. I love that, and but just one thing, I I, you know, we have this come up a lot where we have to talk about mandated reporting because often a victim might be assaulted and the child might be witnessing it because mom is trying to protect herself from dad. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, or whatever the situation may be in within the home, but the child witnesses that. And so, you know, the one thing that we ask is that clinicians um, disclose that they are mandated reporter before the victim starts talking, right? Because if I start talking and I'm like, yeah, my child witnessed the whole thing, uh, but then you're mandated to report it. And I don't know that you're a mandated reporter, you see? So, it often um, then you have to call, which is legal, you know, and that makes sense. But then they could put that child in jeopardy, you know, for being taken from the home. And so if you disclose it ahead of time, then mom has the opportunity and, you know, to decide whether she wants to tell you what happened or not. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, understanding that I do it, it's, it's tough if, if a woman walks right into the room and starts saying stuff before I've sort of read her, her rights, right. It's tough, but I, I do make an effort, you know, and I think that we should, clinicians should know that and sort of have the moral uh, aptitude to know, okay, I should be saying this at the beginning, which I do try to uh, make that clear because it's true. People do get into difficult situations where then, um, child Protective Services gets involved, and, it, and which, which as we know, can be a wonderful thing, and can also be incredibly damaging to families. Uh, and so, it's a really, and we don't do it perfectly. It's a really difficult balance. It is, it is, and I will tell you, I don't think we're getting it right. Even our social workers, I don't think we're disclosing these things ahead of time, and it's putting a lot of families in jeopardy. Uh, so we just have to keep talking about it, right? Because nobody does anything perfectly. But this is why we have these conversations to keep educating and just keep talking and, and letting people think critically about these things that they might not have ever thought about before, you know? Um, so I thank you for saying that. And that's very important. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, 
any last words or tips that you would like to share for our audience um, before we go? Uh, no, I think uh, I think we've covered it in pretty good detail. I guess um, uh, instead of giving a tip, because I don't feel really qualified to give a tip in this in this area, right? I think I've talked very openly about the fact that this is hard for me because it's something we don't get great training on. Instead, I would um, my takeaway from this would be that you know, as your average practicing clinician, my opinion is, and I think most of my colleagues would hopefully agree with me, is that we don't get enough training in this stuff. And so, having the conversation about the fact that it's a real gap in our medical knowledge, and we're not sure what to do about it, is uh, is important for our own humility and for helping us to address it um, as a really very prevalent and very important, you know, determinant of health for our patients. Uh, and so I thank you, Christina, for um, for opening up this conversation and, and helping me to reflect, too, on what I need to do to continue to uh, be a, be better at screening and acting on this when it does come up in a clinical setting. Thank you, Dr. Hill, for this, for talking with me today and allowing me to interview you. And honestly, it sounds like you're doing a great job just from everything that you said to me. It, you're on the right path and you are doing wonderful and, and you're trying in a lot of areas where I talk with doctors and they just don't know what to do and they don't know what to say, so they don't say anything. So I do um, appreciate that you make the extra effort to be the advocate for your patients. And and we just encourage that all doctors do that um, and, and to think about it in, in those, that way. Um, so yes, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Christina. Keep doing the amazing work that you're doing.